Hello and welcome to episode 159 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always with... Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. How are you? Hello, Jason. I'm doing well. How are you, sir? I'm good. I feel like we can just cut that intro and play it for every single episode now. We're always good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm on spring break. Oh, I don't know about you, but I'm on spring break. Classes are out now, huh? I don't know what your classes are, but that's nice. Yeah, yeah. No, the, the, the kids are on spring break and took them out to Camp Grammy and Grandpa for the week. And, and so now I'm I'm back here at the house just so that I can record the podcast with you and then headed back out for the Easter holiday. So, you rank high on the list of needing to travel places to, Fantastic. Uh, to do things with. So, there's that. I am how, the- uh, how are things by you? Good. I have my windows open. It's nice. I like it. That's important. Yep. It's, of course, the old joke about Chicago, there are two seasons, winter and road construction. And of course, the road construction season has started. So, my windows are decidedly closed because they are doing some sort of road construction right outside my house. Well, that's fun. Why wouldn't they be? I don't know. But on the other hand, I booked some flights today. So, that's nice. That's I don't important. Know if I don't know if I'm going to keep them, but I booked them. <laughs> Such as it goes these days. Yeah. I happened to bring up the Maho Beach webcam earlier today and I literally looked at it and said, huh, that looks nice. And, you know, a couple hours later, I found there were a couple booked flights in my inbox. Amazing how that happens. Weird, just, right? They just, they just, I don't know, they, officer, they just I don't know there. how they got there. Yeah, points were deducted from my airline account and suddenly there are flights. And, and, and there it is. Yeah. Oh, well, I wish you happy travels whenever you may go. Thank you. And I'll be there on a Tuesday. So maybe I can, I won't fly home to record a podcast with you, but if I'm recording from anywhere that isn't home, St. Martin sounds like a good place. To I mean, it. that's a decent place to be. I mean, I don't mind pausing every you know few minutes to let the, the plane land while you're on the beach. I, I yeah, don't mind. I, I'm assuming there's going to be less traffic now than uh, pre-COVID, especially less than the last time I was there in 2015. I feel like half the airlines I saw back then don't even exist anymore, but I'm excited if I go. I mean, yeah, if you go, if you go. Tamping down expectations. I, I appreciate that. We have a good show. This week, we've got a lot to talk about, and we've got Ned Russell from Skift, who's back to not only be an airline reporter, which is his day job, but his afternoon job as train reporter and his evening job as bus reporter. So, he'll be filling all of the modes of transportation, and we'll talk to him in a little bit about ground transportation connecting to air transportation. So, so some interesting stuff happening throughout the industry, and we'll talk with him in a little bit. But we will start with what happened, well, not long after we recorded the podcast last week, wherein a DHL Aero Expresso 757 landed mostly okay in San Jose, Costa Rica after a hydraulic failure. However, on the rollout, the aircraft skidded to the right, made it across the high-speed exit, then over a service road into a ditch and spun 180 degrees, breaking the aircraft in two. So, not great, but luckily, cargo aircraft and both crew members were not seriously injured. So, as as far as aircraft skidding off the runway- Wait, did you say cargo aircraft not injured? Because the aircraft was quite injured. Thankfully, it's a cargo aircraft. Oh, okay. so, So, no passengers. And the crew was not seriously injured. 
Right. Yeah. The the no, aircraft itself, the aircraft uh, itself is is, is done. Yes. There, the, there's the there's no coming back. There's not enough duct tape in the world to put that it's, thing. It's yeah. not Delta, so it's done for. Exactly. That's a good good clarification. And the registration number on this aircraft is really weird, right? Do you recall it offhand? The generally the HP regs are are very long. It's HP two zero one zero Delta Alpha Echo. So they're they're quite long and and there's a, a schematic to them that I have not looked into in any length or, or depth, but it does make sense when you dig into them. But but in this particular case, kind of the best outcome given the situation. Yeah. I think if I recall correctly, there had been some reported hydraulic issues with this aircraft in the not too recent past and it appears that uh, reared its ugly head again and, and yet another case where ditches near the sides of a runway prove that if not for those ditches, the aircraft probably would have been just fine pending whatever repairs and heavy inspections would have had to go on. It, it seems like it was just barely going to be fine and that it hit that ditch and, and that was that. And that was that. So now the, the aircraft is in I don't know if it fully broke into two pieces. So it's kind of like one and a half pieces, maybe. Definitely the left side of the aircraft. What was interesting, a couple of things were very interesting to me. One, it happened at such a slow speed. They exited the runway and, and kind of made that skidding turn at about 40 knots and it decreased from there. So thankful for that aspect that they were able to slow down as much as they could before either the brakes locked up or, or, or they lost steering or whatever happened to, to induce that, that right turn. The other thing that if you look at the picture and we'll put kind of all of the data and, and images that we have in the show notes this week, all of the cargo, it didn't move at all. It's no. all palletized and it's all just exactly where it was in the aircraft when it was in the air. Yep, the pallets did their job. The packages will be a little late getting to their destination, but they will all get there. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, that, that's kind of yeah, kind of the crazy thing there. So yeah, I just thought it was very interesting, but how well those cargo locks did their job. Shall we talk about some other yellow planes? Sure. I, I think I all know right. which one you're talking about. It's the this, yellowest, this might isn't be. It? It's the yellowest plane. So last week we had Leslie Josephs from CNBC on and and she explained or attempted to explain as best as anyone can what JetBlue is thinking trying to to take over Spirit. So this came out on the 5th of April. On the 5th of April in the afternoon, Spirit Airlines confirmed the receipt of the unsolicited proposal from JetBlue Airways. Then on the 7th of April, so so a few days later, at 10 p.m., no less, they put out another press release that said Spirit Airlines begin to begin discussions with JetBlue. And so what they said is that it could their JetBlue's proposal could reasonably be likely to lead to a superior proposal as defined in Spirit's merger agreement with Frontier. And so they they have to engage with the this proposal and they have to basically hear JetBlue out to see if this is going to be a, a, a good deal. Spirit notes, and, and quoting further on down in this press release, Spirit notes that there can be no assurance that the discussions with JetBlue will result in a transaction. Spirit shareholders do not need to take any action at this time, and Spirit's board has made no change to its recommendation that its shareholders adopt a merger agreement with Frontier. So they're going to do their due diligence and see where this leads if, in fact, they can recommend Frontier's proposal or JetBlue's to their shareholders to, to see which airline takes them over. 
still where we were last week after we talked with Leslie about how much sense this makes from multiple points of view. But but that's where things stand, legally speaking now. Yeah, nobody in, in the, the last week has really shown us like a chalkboard of, of a bunch of words and lines and circles making it all make sense to us. It, it is still as confusing today as it was seven days ago. So yeah, if anyone is able to shed more light, bring more clarity, or provide a convincing rationale of why this makes sense, we are happy to have them on the podcast and, and explain it to all of you, dear listeners. Email us at podcast at fr24.com if you are that person, by all means. So this week, the EU added more Russian airlines to its blacklist, which is separate from sanctions. So the air safety list is a list of carriers, doesn't have to necessarily be, be Russian carriers, they're carriers from a variety of countries that are banned from operating within the European Union with certain exceptions. So other countries and other airlines include airlines from Venezuela, Suriname, Iran, Iraq, Nigeria, Zimbabwe, Angola, Djibouti, Kyrgyzstan, Libya, Nepal. And now there is a long list of Russian airlines. So the sanctions ban them for political reasons. The EU blacklist bans these Russian carriers for air safety reasons. Granted, there are political implications from all of this, but the, the gist of it is because these airlines have continued to operate their aircraft without what the EU considers to be a valid airworthiness certificate because these – remember, these were aircraft that were formerly on on a foreign registry, either mostly Bermudan but some some Irish. These aircraft are now being moved over to the Russian registry illicitly and without a valid certificate of airworthiness. So aircraft from airlines like Aurora Airlines, Aeroflot, of course, all of the Aeroflot groups, so, so Aeroflot, Aurora and, and Rosaya, airlines like uh, Smartavia, Ural, Alrosa, Nordstar, Nordwind, um, those aircraft in addition to, to multiple others are no longer allowed to operate into the EU regardless of what any sanction regime might say. So it's unclear if how long after any sanctions are possibly eventually lifted this would take to unwind even further. So this kind of deepens the ban on aircraft by operated by Russian airlines in the EU. Yeah. And airlines come and go from this list all the time. So as quickly as some of these come on, they can be removed from this list. Um, I think Iraqi Airways was just added to the list as well, which I was a little surprised about. I thought they were expanding quite a bit. I know they're taking delivery of some very interesting and new aircraft. So I was surprised to see them on the list too. Yeah. And remember the exceptions are sometimes granted. So if there are wet lease operators that are, are operating for these particular lines, that can be allowed or the carrier can, can work its way up to satisfying the safety concerns of, of Yasa and going from there. Let's stick with Europe and, and with, with Yasa and talk about the aircraft that we've colloquially come to know as COVID combis or Praetors. EASA issued guidelines for carriers that are operating converted passenger aircraft as dedicated cargo aircraft to say that 
given the situation and given the change in the COVID situation and the cargo market, they are going to end their guidelines for these converted aircraft at the end of July of this year. So 31 July 2022. Beyond that, airlines that are operating the converted aircraft for cargo are no longer going to be allowed to do so. That's interesting. I didn't think we'd be seeing the end of this so soon as passenger travel hasn't completely rebounded and probably won't for some time. I I thought we would see this for a while more. I I wonder, there are a lot of like A34600s operated between, I think that like the UK and JFK um, ex-Virgin aircraft. I guess that will be the end of this or, or, or not because they're not under... Yasa, if they're out of the UK, I don't know, but I'll be sad to see that go if it is just a couple months from now. Yeah, if well, the funny thing is, is now if they're out of the UK, they can likely continue to operate. Yeah, but it'll be interesting to see what airlines within Yasa's jurisdiction start doing this. And the move to me was interesting because I was reading a FreightWaves article this week that was talking about the article was focusing on the context of United's triple sevens coming back into service and, and the slight delay of, of about a month of their triple seven two hundreds that that have been down uh, because of the Pratt and Whitney engine issues. But the article brought up some interesting points. Says there's currently a 14% cargo capacity deficit, and, and a big chunk of that is because international passenger airline carriage has only returned to about 40%. I mean, we, we talk about the recovery of, of aviation you know, as kind of uh, COVID becomes more manageable and countries open up a bit more. But a lot of that has really been driven by domestic capacity and international capacity is still well below where it was in, in 2019 and even early 2020. So that's a big chunk. But also one of the big chunks here is that Russian cargo airlines are now out of the picture. And Russian cargo airlines, while they didn't account for a huge percentage of cargo capacity worldwide, they did account for a, a big chunk of cargo capacity for that super heavy stuff. And because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we've got Antonov Airlines, which operates the AN-124, besides a Russian airline, Volga Volga Dnieper. Those are the two major operators of the AN-124, which you know is a huge cargo carrier. I mean, if you've got the really big stuff, that's what you want to get. So this has impacted a lot of different places. So it does surprise me as well that they've decided that they're just they're done at the end of July. All that to say, it may be that IASA Airlines are done with that. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Well, we'll have to see. There's even right now, there's a, a couple A340s passenger aircraft that have been converted to carry cargo. They're, they're up in the air right now. So I guess at the end of July, they will no longer be operating in or out of the EU. I, I guess not. This is not 737 MAX news as far as the aircraft are concerned, but it does affect 737 MAX pilots. And Jason, this is, it's kind of a hang your head and, and, and shake it back and forth a little bit. Yeah. So uh, this article comes from Bloomberg. Headline here, Boeing 737 MAX simulator glitches prompt India to ground pilots. Uh, So one of the big selling points of the MAX was that this is a very contentious point that had uh, Mark Forkner, the the chief pilot, was it? The chief test pilot? or Yeah, chief technical pilot. Chief technical pilot basically caught 
saying that any airline that would want simulator training for this is stupid. It's not necessary. It's just and, – and Boeing, we know, tried as hard as it could to make uh, simulator training for the MAX not necessary. And, and after the, the incidents with MCAS, it, it, it changed its tone on that. And, and now it is required to have simulator training to go from the NG to the MAX. Meanwhile, in India, uh, they have barred 90 pilots from flying the MAX after finding problems with the simulator they had trained on to operate the MAX, which the country, uh, India, had just recently ungrounded. It turns out a routine check of the simulator revealed uh, revealed deficiencies in investigations underway to discover what caused them, so on and so on. They found glitches with the flight controls and stick shaker, according to people familiar with the matter. So flight controls is, is pretty generic sounding. That could be anything from the elevator didn't work as intended, or maybe MCAS wasn't programmed correctly. Who knows? But the stick shaker would have been that's the, the thing that literally shakes the yoke when the aircraft is in a stall condition, which is something that happened in the MCAS incidents. Not a great look. Things you want to work. Yes. These are things obviously you would want a simulator to mimic real world conditions as closely as is feasibly possible. And it is very interesting that in this case, it was so apparently not in line with real world conditions or controls that uh, this poor airline has to go back and, and, or I guess several airlines in India would have to go back and retrain 90 pilots. Not the worst thing in the world to have happen. No. But also not great. It's a good thing to catch, but it's something that should not happen, probably. Right. Right. So this is an interesting one to me, and it gets into the the rules of what happens when things go bad. A trio of people filed a complaint against United Airlines for compensation for a 223-minute delay on a flight between Brussels and San Jose, California. Now, if they had been flying on, say, Brussels Airlines between Brussels and and San Jose and and the airline had delayed them that much, there would have been an easy form that they fill out for regulated compensation, generally known as EU-261. Jason and I have have both had recent experience with EU 261 from December of last year. And we've talked about how, you know, you, you fill out a form, you say, this is my ticket number, these were the dates, this is how much compensation I'm owed, because you know, you check the boxes of this is uh, we were delayed this long, I had incurred these number of this amount of expenses, and, and they say, okay, here's your money, or they they say, no, we're not going to give you that money. And in Jason's case, you have to fight it and, and wait for a little bit longer. But it, generally, you're, you're compensated in short order. If you want it bad enough, you'll get it. Right. If you're flying a European carrier. If you were flying a US carrier, which these folks were, they were flying United Airlines, you're not legally entitled to anything because up until now, that is, US Airlines aren't subject to EU 261 compensation rules. A new ruling by the Court of Justice in the European Union has now said for the first time that if you had booked your flight through a European airline, even if you are flying a non-EU airline, 
you are entitled to that amount of compensation, the, the, the proper amount of compensation. So these folks booked through Lufthansa via a travel agency for an, a flight operated by United Airlines. The court says, well, United was operating as a contracting carrier, operating on behalf of the contracting carrier, and so they may be liable to pay compensation to these folks for their delay. So a very interesting new layer in the EU 261 compensation scheme, and it'll be interesting to see how this continues to work its way through the the courts if if there's any additional claims to be made, but it'll be interesting to see what, if anything, happens going forward and how much compensation these folks end up getting. Yeah, that's very interesting. Since here in the US, we consumer protections here, there's no other way of saying it. They suck. We don't have anything that comes anywhere remotely close to EU 261. The only thing I can really think of are the tarmac delay rules where if uh, an airline keeps you on board the aircraft on the tarmac for three hours for a domestic flight, four hours for an international flight, um, there are extremely heavy fines. But of course, passengers don't get that money. That goes to the government, which also sucks. But very interesting that this would be US carriers or, or non-EU carriers would be held liable uh, to the same standard that European carriers are. That's uh, a new twist and I wish we had that here. I, I think it would dramatically change a lot of things. But but I think that might be a, um, a bigger conversation for, for a different episode. What do you say we take a break here? And when we come back, we'll talk with Ned. Uh, we'll go back to Europe and talk planes, trains, and buses. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We are once again joined by Ned Russell of Skift and Airline Weekly. He is an airline reporter there, but we've brought him back today because he is also a rail transportation reporter for this particular episode of the podcast. Ned, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Ian. It's a pleasure to be back. Welcome, Ned. And and Correct me if I'm wrong, but trains are not airplanes, right? That is correct. Trains are not airplanes. They don't have many wings and they don't fly through the air. But you're here to tell us how sometimes they take the place of airplanes. Absolutely. I was just had the opportunity to try one of Air France's uh, train plus air connections where they a train operated by the French railway company SNCF operates with the flight and takes the place of an actual flight. So this is something you go to the Air France website and you say, I want to go from point A to, to point B, or really point C, and you're connecting through through one of Air France's hubs. In this case, you were connecting through Paris. And part of that connection is traveling from the aircraft to a train and then onward to your to your next destination. Walk us through how that works, how you go from choosing the, the trip to to actually connecting. So yeah, so you know, I forced this to set this up so that I could I could make a connection to a train. Just that's this was a planned trip, but Air France markets uh, eighteen domestic markets that it operates trains in uh, with connections via Lyon or Paris, and so I have to give them kudos. Go to the Air France website, type in I did uh, Marseille to Brussels, and you type that in, and the website gives you uh, first up connections that involve a train. It flew up to Paris, and then it was a train for the, the last segment. And 
You know, I have to say, I think a lot of people don't think of taking a train on some of these shorter routes, but I, I give kudos to Air France's booking system for putting the train right up top. And, you know, and I've since learned that there are actually no flights between Paris and Brussels. So there wasn't a choice, but there are other airlines that fly to Brussels, so they could have tried something else. So uh, yeah, it goes in, you book it like a normal flight, can't select your seats, but it's otherwise really straightforward. And air plus rail, I guess, is what they call it now. But that's been a thing with Air France for a while now, right? This isn't a new thing, but is it recently or to be expanded? Yeah. So they, I spoke to Air France about this, and they've been offering these for about 25 years. They couldn't give me an exact date, but mid-90s is a good good place. So they have the, – these have gained – a renewed interest recently with the French climate law in 2021 that mandated certain domestic routes where trains were two and a half hours be on on a train and flights couldn't operate. And so Air France canceled three routes out of Orly. So that's not a lot. But as part of that, Air France is working more with SNCF to expand their offering connections. They added a number of new cities last year. And this year, they're working on offering a fully digital solution where you could check in on your app and you get both boarding passes all the way through. Um, that was not in place. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, what was the experience? Because today, you know, you, you book a flight. You, if you have multiple flights in the same itinerary, typically you check in for the first. It will check you in for both flights. But in this case, what did you have to do to, I guess, check in or, or, or just arrive for the, the second flight, which happened to be the train? Yeah, well, that's where the the whole system sort of uh, got a little precarious, is a good way to put it. I was able to check in on the app, but not get my boarding pass for the train portion. And so when I landed at Charles de Gaulle, and, and I should say I there was snow in April, so my flight was late, and I, I had a very tight connection. I had to actually go find the, the air rail uh, office in the TJV station at Charles de Gaulle. And you know, the disappointing thing was, while the booking system promoted this connection, it was not very intuitive once I got to Charles de Gaulle. There were no signs until after baggage claim. So if you're coming in and you don't know you're necessarily on a train, you're going to be in trouble because you're like, where am I going? There's nothing that says go out baggage claim, go to the station. So it, that was uh, challenging. And then you have to find the actual office in the TGV station. That's a great point because I just had a couple flight to flight connections in de Gaulle and just getting from like E to F or, or the K concourse or whatever, just changing between flights was, even for me, was a little confusing just, just to navigate because you have to walk and then you have to take a train, then you have to go through security and customs. But unless they explicitly tell you, even though you're in the Schengen technically flight, you have to completely go through baggage claim and, and technically leave the airport to get to your train. Absolutely. And that was a problem. You, know, I, I came off my plane and you know, like I said, I had a tight connection. I was worried I was going to miss the train and went to the, the departures board down on the, you know, not yet having exited the concourse thinking it'd say Brussels, proceed to you know train or something. But my flight wasn't even up there. And I just had to take the leap of faith and walk right out into the arrivals hall that that was the right place to go. And I consider myself fairly savvy traveler. So I was fairly confident that was the right thing to do. But I can easily see someone that's not sure being like, what the heck do I do? So taking the, I guess, the logistics out of it, or, or the, the wayfinding in De Gaulle, how was the actual transfers? Since unlike here in the US, where seemingly trains and planes are completely divorced from each other physically, I know the trains are very close inside De Gaulle, but was it really like you walk out of baggage claim, then you walk downstairs to this regional train? 
Yes. Thankfully, it was pretty simple. I left baggage claim. It was about, I mean, they say it's a five-minute walk. took me probably three. I might have been sprinting part of it. Then you're literally in the TJV station, stopped in the office. The gentleman there (laughs) did not seem as concerned about my tight connection as I was, and I was on my train within 15 minutes. So I I did make a 20-minute connection at the Gaul to the train some sprinting involved. But you know, the actual, yeah, getting to the train, very easy. No aero train to take me to the station or, or monorail like at Newark. It was, yeah, that was easy. Are there any other countries or, or regions that are looking to, I don't know if model is the right word, but adopt this or expand this program where you can easily transfer and book on the same ticket from air to rail? So the leaders are France and Germany, and Germany is actually uh, far above France. I was speaking to, I spoke to both Lufthansa and Air France, and Lufthansa says they have uh, more than 500,000, or they did, at the 500,000 joint itineraries booked in 2019, whereas Air France only had about 160,000. So Germany is by far the leader, and even there, the Lufthansa is working with Deutsche Bahn to, to offer more of these now. Several other countries, Italy and Spain are looking at modeling on France's legislation. Well, Germany too, but that's aside. Italy and Spain are modeling on France's legislation, but the connections are not as easy there from what I can tell. Iberia and Spain just started offering some connections with, with the Spanish rail operator. But the problem there is you still have to you get you have to literally take either the subway or a taxi from the airport terminal to the the train station. So there they're completely separate and I really question how successful that will be. Yeah, it seems to me that the best place for this to work is when you can physically transfer in the least amount of time, like at the Gaulle, where you can go downstairs and get on the train. If you have to get on the subway, for instance, like if the US miraculously had high-speed rail throughout the country and you flew into Chicago and wanted to take the train up to Milwaukee, you would have to take the subway all the way downtown to switch to to the Amtrak train. Wait, the, the um, Hyperloop's not open yet? The, no, no, the Hyperloop is not open yet. Darn it. I had my uh, ticket booked. I, I completely, I completely or, forgot or about that. Or you could take one of Metro's three trains a day downtown. Sure, sure. Okay, so there are a few options, but you still Bad have to take options. roughly between 30 and 45 minutes to go to a different train station. So that seems to be kind of the limiting factor at the moment. Um, Absolutely. You know, what I'm really excited about, though, is uh, in Florida, there's a new rail line, Brightline, which is set to open to the Orlando airport late this year, early in 2023. And that will actually be a train station in the airport for an intercity train. And I'm very curious if we're going to start seeing some of these joint, these air rail connections, joint itineraries being booked. It's uh, nothing's been announced yet, but it's going to actually make it possible in the US for the first time. Well, we used to have kind of a a weaker version of, of air rail here in the US with United and Amtrak. I mean, none of the connections between the airports and Amtrak were, were all that great outside of Newark, where you just had to take the air train to the station. But we did have an air rail connection, United and Amtrak, but that unfortunately vanished without a trace in 2020, didn't it? It did. And I'm still wondering why that vanished. You know, it's, I think it's a partnership that was underutilized. I, I feel, and this is just a, a, my hunch, that if United had promoted those connections, if people had gone in and typed in 
say, you know, London to New Haven, did they automatically get the train or London to Philly? It's I, I really wonder if the booking engine promoted the train over the flights. And I, I have a feeling that United's booking engine did not. But that's, yeah, the, I, I don't the know. The booking engine really didn't push it. But then they had physical things set up like in, in New York Penn Station. Uh, United had their, their titles right next to the Amtrak logo on the lounge there. And they even had like a full-blown ticketing office in Penn Station. But if you're not pushing it in the booking flow, no one's going to utilize it. And that seems to be exactly what happened. Absolutely. I think really pushing as a booking flow in the booking flow is the key to this. I spoke to some people about Landline, which is United's bus service in Denver. And you know, one of the big criticisms I, I heard was not that the service was bad, but just because people didn't think they forgot about it when they were buying a flight or, or didn't know about it. If United was like, well, hey, you could take the bus on to Fort Collins. Why don't you try this? They'd be like, oh, you know, but we'll do that. But they didn't. And so it's maybe not as well utilized as it could be. That was one more thing I wanted to talk about. That's not trains, but it's buses. And this was a very popular topic this week. Tell us a little about what American announced. The road trains. Yeah, you put it, you glue a couple buses together, you get a train. Tell me what American did, because I thought this was a step above what United's doing. Absolutely. So American is partnering with with the same bus company, Landline, to offer two connections in Philadelphia to uh, Atlantic City and Allentown. But the big difference that Jason's alluding to is passengers are going to be able to board the bus in Atlantic City and Allentown after security. So you go through TSA at these small at the small airports, and then the bus is going to arrive airside in Philadelphia. Your bags are going to transfer automatically. It literally is going to be like a flight on the ground. You're going to, in theory, be inside security the whole time, which is could really be a game changer for this. Logistically, it sounds like a nightmare, but also if they can make it work, (laughs) it would be really interesting because Atlantic City really doesn't have much air service right now outside of Spirit, soon to be JetBlue, maybe. I don't know. We'll see. Or Frontier. Yeah, but there was a lot of pushback like, oh, stupid Americans, why don't you just run a train from Atlantic City to Philly? And well, there already is a train. But it's slow and doesn't actually go to the airport. I think the Atlantic City line just goes to 30th Street in Philly, and then you'd have to connect to the airport line. That would take a lot longer than a bus. Right, or just driving. I I spoke to Landline CEO David Sunday, and he was saying that they really compete with people just driving to the airport rather than taking a train. But I do want to say, I, for the record, I did speak to a few people. Landline will not be taping the doors closed once, they, uh, <laughs> once they're inside security. That is... Uh, <laughs> That's good to know. So, though, they didn't provide me any more details, but they will not be, uh, yeah, sealing They're buses. not taping the doors closed. Yeah, yeah. Well, until I can get on a monorail from Shelbyville to New Haverbrook, I'm not going to be happy. I come to put them on the map. But that's perhaps for another conversation. Ned Russell, airline reporter, bus reporter, train reporter at Skifton Airline Weekly. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you coming back. Thanks for having me back, guys. Welcome back. It is now a time to revisit something that we talked about Low these many episodes ago, we talked about one of the initial incidents of a low takeoff in Dubai on episode 145. That was actually our first episode of the year back in, in January. Who can remember? And Jeez. I, well, that's why we have the show notes and, and links and all of these magical things. It's the internet. So in January, what had happened is 
Emirates 231 that was leaving Dubai for Washington, D.C. on the 20th of December had an incident where the aircraft did not climb as it was supposed to. The the aircraft stayed on the runway for much longer than it should have and after takeoff did not climb at the appropriate rate. Now, the FAA has issued a special airworthiness information bulletin, which is an informational bulletin that is not mandatory. It's a readme file. It's exactly. It's a, it's a readme file. An important one, but the airlines don't have to do anything because hopefully they're already doing this. So the FAA says that they've received reports from operators that affected airplanes. The altitude hold mode was erroneously engaged during takeoff. So that's what happened to the the Emirates aircraft. Uh, We don't know how many other aircraft it has affected, but this particular issue can affect 777s and 787s. And the only reason it only includes those two is because the FAA says they're still checking to see whether or not the 747s, 75s, 76 are still still affect or are are affected by this particular issue. And the airworthiness information bulletin goes on to explain when the alt mode can be erroneously engaged and one of those things talks about when the MCP alt is selected within 20 feet of the displayed barometric altitude. So for airports that are are very close to to sea level that also have pilots who are resetting the MCP alt to zero at the end of a flight and then new pilots are coming in and starting the aircraft up and not changing that in, in a in a way then these incidents can occur. So the airworthiness information bulletin is saying, hey, don't do that. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so so hopefully these things don't happen and people read this README file. We've talked about some of the things that the Russian aviation industry is doing to try and blunt the impact of the sanctions and airline bans and things like that to take advantage of still being able to operate certain aircraft. And one of the things that they've done is restarted the TU-214 production line. They've also set up new bases where they're operating existing super jets. And now what they're doing is replacing the, I guess for lack of a better term, Western components in the super jet. Yeah. Well, you've heard of the A320neo family, but have you heard of the SSJ new family? That's the actual name. And this is not a new project. This dates back several years, but now has uh, renewed focus, I guess, and and renewed uh, importance that Sukhoi and Russia was very proud of the Superjet 100 and that how kind of in the same way that the 787 is is a global aircraft and that parts were sourced globally and it was it was a very international cooperation focused aircraft well now they have to undo all of that and have to not just shed the american parts but all the parts that would have come out of the eu and we're talking about parts uh, avionics from talus and and engines that were in part with saffron and landing gear from saffron the apu from honeywell all those parts have got to go so while the the aircraft fuselage and i'm sure plenty of other systems are, are of russian origin they basically have to re-engineer the entire aircraft from the ground up 
to be of fully Russian built parts. And they're hoping that the first flight of the Superjet new will be in 2023, early 2023. So not that far off in the future. The Superjet new. Not the Neo, the new. The new. Okay. Not the Max, the new. (laughs) Okay. Jason, we were, I forget even how this came up the other day, but we were talking about watching some interesting flights by Air Baltic because of who they're operating for. And it's one of those things where you don't expect the airline CEO to reply to you directly, but he in fact did. But he did. Um, so, so walk us through what, what's, what's going on and, and why this is interesting in, in the least. Well, Air Baltic, a lovely little airline that is now exclusively an operator of the A220-300, I believe. Is it all 300 or are there some 100s? Either way. It's all I think a- there are some 100s. All, all A220s, that's right. I happened to take a look at some of the flights that they are operating and it, it's quite interesting in that demand is down for themselves, so they're wet leasing out their aircraft. But if you plot out all of the routes that they're operating on behalf of SAS, and Eurowings, and Eurowings Discover, which is apparently not Eurowings, it's Eurowings Discover. Um, it looks like a major European multi-hubbed major airline operating all through Europe. I believe Eurowings is basing some aircraft out of Dusseldorf. Eurowings Discover has them out of Munich. Air SAS will have them out of primarily Stockholm, and they're going all the way down to, I think, like Tenerife and, and all the way down to Malta, out in multiple places in Greece, all the way up into uh, the northern reaches of Sweden. And it's it's just very interesting how well Air Baltic has taken this downturn of its own bookings and divvied out its aircraft to other places. And the CEO of the airline quote tweeted my tweet and said, uh, Air Baltic will be using this summer 11 of its A22300s for the network I just uh, mentioned, while the remaining 24 will fly for its own network. So it's using about a third of its aircraft to operate for other airlines. And I know this is not unique. This is something that happens every summer that European airlines, mainly Eurowings these days, needs to wet lease aircraft from other airlines. But if you just put it on a map, it just looks like this is an entirely different airline operating within Air Baltic. And it's just uh, well done to them. And I will correct what I said just a few moments ago. It is all A22300s. Ah, okay. Interesting. So there you go. Speaking of A22300s and a bunch of other Airbus aircraft, as well as Boeing aircraft, we now have the Airbus and Boeing orders and deliveries for the first quarter of the year. And not a whole lot of huge surprises, but a few interesting nuggets to pull out. So first quarter of 2022, Boeing delivered 95 aircraft, Airbus delivered 140 Boeing took in 167 gross orders, uh, and we'll get to gross versus net in a minute, Uh, 167 gross orders, and Airbus took in 253 gross orders. Couple things about those uh, delivery numbers, Airbus has two A350s ready to go home for Aeroflot. 
they're not going home to Aeroflot. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with those aircraft. Do they go into storage? Do they offer them to another customer? I don't know what happens to those aircraft. Yeah, it was interesting on the the O&D spreadsheet, they were actually listed as uh, on the delivery pages as negative two due to sanctions, a a section that I've never seen before. So it seems like these aircraft were either partially or almost fully delivered, but has now been clawed back for obvious reasons. Whatever the case, they were very, very ready to be delivered and not anymore. They'll end up somewhere, but they won't be going to Russia. No, certainly not. Airbus deliveries, 58 321neos, 49 320neos, 14 A350s, 11 220s, uh, 6 A330s, and 2 A319s. All right. Not not A319neos, A319s. Interesting. So I don't know where those came from or, or what they're doing, but but they're there. Let's see. Boeing's 95 aircraft made up of 86 737. Max aircraft, five 767s cargo, three 777s, and one 747. And you'll note that I did not list any 787s. Yeah. The 787 is still not available. That's for not great. Not great. Maybe next quarter. Maybe next quarter. I wish I could tell you. Some interesting things on the orders. I mentioned the the gross orders. The net orders are where things get interesting because AirAsia X had a huge A330neo order book. They had 63 A330-900s on order and I think 10 or 12, 10 A321neos. Those have all been struck. So there's going to be a lot of extra A330 Neo production space. So if anyone is in the market for an A330 Neo, now is the time to put your order in and probably get a decent price. That's great. Um, I might not need one, but if the deal is right and availability is soon, I could take one. Well, I mean, you you have to buy five dozen. That's the problem. Never mind. Yeah. Sorry. And then a big order chunk for the A320 Neo family with BOC Aviation picking up 80 members of the family, 10 A321 XLRs, 50 A321 Neos, and 20 A320 Neos. And I guess a, a side note on the A321 XLR, the first one rolled out of the factory and over to the paint factory this week. Hey, that's great. No engines on it just yet, but I'm assuming those will come soon. No, no, they were there. They were there. Uh, they, were they, they had the engines on? on. I thought yeah, I saw yeah, the yeah. photos without the engines. Huh. That's progress. Well, maybe I'm thinking of something. Else. I don't know. We'll have to go back and, and double check. But there are engines somewhere around. Okay. But yeah, a pretty big order from, from BOC Aviation for, for Airbus. And that walks us through the numbers. I mean, not a bad first quarter, all things considered, for either Boeing or Airbus. Yeah. Got to get those 787s rolling out of uh, storage though. And then things will get much more interesting because this is just sad at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, they, they figure out all that rework and start getting 787s out the door. I mean, I know – I can't imagine a a much higher priority at Boeing right now. No. That's got to be the highest. Well, this has been episode 159 of AvTalk. We are closing in on, I guess, 
another, should we call 175 uh, the next milestone episode and figure out something for that one? But 159, I'm feeling good about things. How about you, Jason? Yes. Excellent. If everyone else is feeling good, why don't you go ahead and leave us a uh, rating or review? Or if you're not feeling good, let us know why so that we can help you feel good about this podcast. We enjoy doing this. I don't know if you can tell, but I hope you can. We really enjoy doing the podcast and we want to keep doing it. So you would be so kind to allow us to beg for ratings and reviews wherever you get your podcasts. We would be ever so grateful if you would do that. I am Ian Pechnik, here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.